so I'm really excited about this because uh, I've been uh, reading Dan Barker's material and, and, and uh, listening to his debates for years now, and so I'm really excited to have uh, Reverend Barker on the show. Yeah, in fact, uh, he is such a big fanboy of uh, of Dan Barker that I've seen him take the books to the shower with him. It's kind of uh, a little bit of an odd situation. A little creepy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just a that little. Proves that I'm all wet. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what was that? Omni uh, aqueous. Was aqueous. Yeah, omni yeah. aqueous. <laughs> yeah. See, uh, Layton actually. Um, uh, do you do this to your friends, uh, Dan? I-, I loaned a book to Layton of yours called Losing Faith in Faith, and he liked it so much he's never given it back to me. What a douchebag. Mm. Well, we non-believers have no morals. <laughs> That's, That's true. Totally we true. don't get our morals for God. So, yeah. <laughs> so, Dan, how do you like to be addressed? Do you like to be addressed as uh, Mr. Barker, Reverend, um, Doctor, what? Yeah, the supreme ruler of the universe is taken already. So. Son, son of God. I'm, I'm sorry I filed for that. I didn't know you were after it, too. So, so I'll go with the name my parents gave me, and that's Dan. All right, we'll talk to you. We'll, we'll refer to you as Dan. Um, see, I've, I've read Losing Faith and Faith. I've listened to your debates. Um, I actually purchased and read Godless, which is a great update to Losing Faith and Faith. And in that, you talk about... Your first your your conversion experience. You were raised Christian, right? But not converted until you were what fifteen? Yeah, yeah. I was fifteen uh, when I accepted Christ as my Savior, and a little bit later that year when I accepted the call to the ministry. Of course, I have to put those words in quotes now, but you know what I mean. Right, <laughs> right. How did that happen? Well, I was raised in the church. My dad was a seminary student, and my mom was a Sunday school teacher. We were very musical, and we had a musical family team that went around to churches and we didn't just go to church we were active we had meetings at our home we had revival meetings we had uh, saturday meetings with the children on our block Uh, we had like meetings of converted jews and so it's a very active thing and uh, it just felt right and i read the bible a lot and then when i was 15 i thought you know I have to make my own decision because, you know, I used to preach that God doesn't have any grandchildren. There's only children of God, and being born into a Christian family didn't do it. So I, I did that. I, I really believed it, and I felt it, and I, I confessed my sins. I didn't want to go to hell. I wanted to go to heaven. I wanted to live a good life, and I thought Jesus was the prime example. He sacrificed for us, and his death on the cross was payment for my sin, that I was nothing and he was everything. Well, you've heard that story before. And not only did I accept all that by faith, uh, but I felt it, too. I was one of those people. I still am one of those people that gets all those feelings that go along with it. Some some people never do get the feelings, but I really did. Then, that, that's um, interesting because I got the feelings. Uh, you know, in Mormonism, it's very uh, – they tell you to get your own testimony, and that testimony is evidenced by this burning sensation in your bosom. And I got it, but Leighton never did. Yeah, I never got that, and in fact, uh, I was rather shocked when Charlie uh, admitted to him getting that. Well, some of us are just naturally born sinners, you know, and we're just never going to feel it. <laughs> well, true. I think it's more that there's some of us who are just very comfortable with our sin. <laughs> you know what just I, very... think? I have an armchair theory about this, and I might be wrong, but I think, whatever you want to call it... Um, Let's call it the susceptibility to mysticism or whatever. You know, the, the, your ability to get goosebumps and feel these things. I, I think it's one of those characteristics of our species that varies across the population, just like any other characteristic, you know, a metabolism or height or, or 
skin color, hair color, whatever. And so some of us are at one side of the bell curve, and we get all those feelings, and others of us, like Leighton, are at the other side of the bell curve, and you're sitting in church wondering, what the heck's everybody talking about? And I Actually, mostly I sat in church and slept, so... <laughs> <laughs> so were you a true believer then, or did you just go along with it because of your family? Um, I was a true believer when I was uh, when I was young, and then as I was growing up, I started having doubts. But you know, uh, doubting and all of that, you just kind of bury it and continue forward until you can't bury it any longer. And with me, it was the opposite. I I was a true believer and felt it and lived it. And you know, the Bible says, "You shall know them by their fruits." It doesn't matter what people say. And uh, for me, in my 30s, giving it all up was really painful. It was embarrassing because I was so deeply involved. I prayed. I felt this presence. I got goosebumps. I saw answers to prayer. I, I lived by faith. All of that stuff, you know. And it was just so, for me, it was so life-affirming. But for others, like my mother, like my father-in-law, or like James Randi. James Randi says he never felt a thing. He thought his parents were nuts. You know? <laughs> but, uh, I I guess we're all different in how we react to those things. Well, you preached for 19 years. What was it? Was there any particular instant that just made you sit up, look around, blink a couple times, and go, what the hell have I been doing for 19 years? <laughs> it wasn't like that. It was it was gradual. But, but the, the very first time I spoke publicly about my atheism was a few months after I left the ministry in 1984 on Oprah Winfrey's show in Chicago. And she asked me that question. What was it, Dan? What made you change your mind? As if there would be like a simple one-sentence answer, you know? Right. And I looked at her and I said, and I said, well, Oprah, it's because I never got to sleep in on Sunday mornings. So, and that's why I sleep on my <laughs> Now, if I'm not but, um, mistaken, you also said one of my favorite quotes from you, which is, if I had limited myself to Christian authors, I'd still be a Christian today. Yeah. yeah that, well, that's it. That's the bigger story, really. Um, it took four or five years from the very beginning. You know, I didn't just, you don't just jump, for me anyway, you don't just jump from fundamentalist true believer to atheist overnight. You can't do that. It was a very gradual four or five year process, most of which happened within Christianity. I, I migrated from a true born again Bible believing Christian. It started modifying within the church to be so where after a couple of years I became more of a moderate, less evangelical, you know. So my sermons had less hellfire and more love. I had less afterlife and more how do you live this life, you know what I mean? You hear that from the pulpits a lot. But I just kept migrating within Christianity and I discovered there's all these different flavors of Christians. There's probably as many Christians as there are, there's probably as many Christianities as there are Christians. They all have different theologies and I, I swung across that that continuum, and um, and that's right, I started to read, I read other authors, I started to read science, and something woke up in me after all those years of starving myself by sticking with fundamentalist writers and preaching, waiting for the world to end, and I got this hunger to just read, and so I thought it was going to strengthen my faith, but the more I learned, the weaker my faith became, and I just said, wait a minute, faith is worthless, faith is, faith is not something to be proud of. Faith is only used when you don't have knowledge, so I, I threw away my faith. That's why my first book was called Losing Faith in Faith. Right. In in Godless, you mentioned that um, there there were a couple people you were shocked. Uh, I think there was another minister. You were shocked that they didn't believe that Adam and Eve were historical people. 
And you know how could how could you let them remain in the church? Yeah, uh, I remember that. That was uh, like an American Baptist preacher in um, California, and yeah, that that was like it was like my first taste because I published some musicals and I started getting invited to other kinds of Christian churches than the ones I was used to. I started tasting a, a broader cross section of Christian theology, and I really was shocked to think there's people that call themselves Christians who don't think Adam and Eve were actually literal people? What's wrong with them? What, you know, how can I fellowship with them? But I remember thinking, this probably sounds silly to you guys, but I remember thinking that, well, okay, let's put that aside. Let's not let that issue interfere with our fellowship as Christians. We can still be in the same body of Christ and have a different point of view. That was hard for me to do as a fundamentalist. It was a tough... By the way, I did a debate with Dinesh D'Souza last October at University of Wisconsin. And I asked him if Adam and Eve were really, and he said, no, they weren't. <laughs> He's the president of King's College, Evangelical College. And I said, well, was there a talking snake? And he said, no, that was all metaphor. <laughs> and, and here he is, an Evangelical. And I said, well, there's people in this audience who think Adam and Eve were real. The Bible doesn't say it was a parable or a metaphor. And he says, well, those people, those, those Bible literalists are ignoramuses, he said. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so... I think he offended just about everybody in that whole audience, including us atheists, when he said, there is no such thing as an atheist. There's only wounded theists. Of course, of course, of I course. I hate that, that ideology. But uh, in this one instant, I think the atheist up there on the panel uh, was looked with, uh, with more delight than the actual Christian. I think that's a first in history. <laughs> Did I, you see that debate, you mean? No, I would I would love to see. It. Is that available online anywhere? I I think it is online. It was October fourteenth, I think, last year, University of Wisconsin Madison, and right. uh, it was a pretty good debate. We we traded barbs and jokes. You know, it was really. He got up and he said, "Well, I listened to Dan's opening statement, and I saw a point here and I saw a point there, but in between, I felt like I was in a, at a rodeo because in between the points was an awful lot of bull." <laughs> <laughs> So I got up and I said, well, thank you for comparing me to such a strong animal. You know, at a rodeo, there's also a clown. (laughs) (laughs) And that's the one running from the bull. (laughs) We had a lot of fun going back and forth. And we're doing it again in um, San Diego in March. So I'm looking forward to that. Fantastic. Um, Yeah, was that, would you say that first initial step was the hardest? Uh, In one sense. Yes. Intellectually, it wasn't hard. Intellectually, it was a simple thing to do. It was like being tolerant and backing off, you know, and, and saying, I don't know right now. Intellectually, it wasn't hard, but it was an emotionally very difficult thing to do to admit that another person that I respected and valued in the, in the Christian community would have a different theological interpretation from me. And intellectually I could handle that, you know, but emotionally it was really hard. It felt like I was giving up something. It felt like I was losing some ground to, to think that I could allow someone to uh, to accuse the Bible of telling a lie, basically, because the Bible didn't say Adam and Eve weren't historical. So, you know, a couple of years later I made these huge flying leaps that, that were much more important intellectually, uh, but that was tough. It's, it's kind of like, maybe you guys know, you used to believe too, but it's like it's not the issue so much, it's the mindset. It's the, the fundamentalist Christian, like I was, has this absolutistic, they have binary brains. It's either 
hot or cold, because, you know, the Bible says, if you're lukewarm, I'll spit you out of my mouth. Either <laughs> right or wrong, yes or no, true or false, black or white, there is no middle ground. And here I was admitting that maybe there is a little bit of gray area, and I had to surrender 100% absolute, absolutistic thinking, you know what I mean? So that's why it was emotionally difficult to admit that, wait a minute, maybe I don't have all the answers, maybe... Or maybe I did have the truth, but I didn't have a way of solving it right now. So that was very difficult for that kind of a brain to make that kind of a move. Right. Well, I, I remember very well um, the I, you know I always had little doubts, but the the first time I thought, well, you know, maybe the Book of Mormon, um, since there's absolutely no historical evidence for it, or the Book of Abraham, for example, because there's no Egyptologist agrees with Joseph Smith's translation. You know, maybe these things have good spiritual morality or blah, 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 but maybe they're not literally true. That, to me, was a, a wrenching kind of shift, almost like a paradigm shift. Even though it seems like it's small step, It to me it was kind of the beginning of, you know, recognizing that there's this massive house of cards. You take one card away and the whole thing falls. I mean, it, that to me was, the, that initial first step to me was the biggest one. Well, I think that's uh, that's just kind of the general thing that happens to all of us who are deeply religious, and then we start uh, playing favor with these doubts. Um, now, me personally, when I started having my major doubts, I actually went to my father, who I respected very religiously, and uh, basically stopped bringing those things to my family when my father screamed that he knows a hell of a lot more than I do. And I'm, I'm curious, Dan, in, in, in any of these uh, instances of you kind of falling away from faith, did you ever approach your family? Because it sounds like you were raised in the same almost boot camp religion that I was. Well, yeah, um, and, I, and I think you're right about those feelings because it's more than just a simple question of fact or intellect. You're basically betraying your culture, your heritage, your family. It's like spitting on your grandma, who <laughs> did believe in the Book of Mormon, and my grandparents right. who did believe all that. It's not just a simple matter of changing your mind about something. It's 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 your whole identity. It's who you are as a person. I think there's a tribalism in there that you know who we are as a group. Don't insult my nation or my tribe or my ethnicity or my religion. Uh, and when you do that, you're really you know, painting black over all this stuff that used to be so precious. And and you know that to your mom and dad and to your grandparents, what you are saying is deeply offensive to them, and you don't want to be that kind of person. You don't want to be an offensive person. You just want to follow the truth. My mom um, got on a bus when she got my letter that her preacher, ordained preacher, Christian songwriter, evangelist, missionary son, was now an atheist slash agnostic, and she came to California, and we talked late into the night. I didn't know till later that she went back home to Phoenix and stopped going to church. She was a Sunday school teacher. Wow. She wanted to get some distance. She thought, wait, what's going on here? And, this, and I don't remember what we talked about, but she told me that I led her through some of the Bible passages that she used to teach, and I said, Mom, look at this. You're nicer than God. Are you telling children about this being that would do these things? Look at this book. I mean, is that something we should admire? And uh, my dad started writing me letters, gentle, you know, persuasive letters to try to reason with me, and it, and it backfired. And he later told a reporter that, um, he said, you know, I was arguing with Dan, but it went the other way, and he won. And my mom became an atheist after about a year. And she told a reporter, 
Uh, she says, wow, this is so amazing. I don't have to hate anymore. This is great. <laughs> <laughs> and my dad took about a year later. He he was a little harder. And I wasn't, like, preaching at him. I wasn't, you know, harassing them, trying to make him change my mind. In fact, I was just backing off. I was just saying, wait, the uh, last thing I want to be is a missionary to my own family. I mean, that's, you know, how disruptive can that be to a family that loves each other? So... And one of my brothers, Daryl, is a strong atheist humanist now. And the last brother, the third one of us, is a born-again Christian. And he wonders what the heck happened to his family. We call him the white sheep of the family. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it's funny. With you describing that, that's the exact same instance that went on with me, my dad, and my entire family, except uh, kind of the opposite happened. Instead of them uh, turning towards free thought, I was cursed in the name of Jesus Christ to stay away from the family. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, I, I don't want to say anything too personal, but I think all of us have different families and different dynamics and different actual respect and admiration and love for each other as individuals. In my mom and dad's case, we had that, you know, and so mom and dad just could not sacrifice that value over their devotion to their faith. They, for some reason, our family has that whatever you want to call it, a, a real appreciation for each other. It, it's a functional family. It's not dysfunctional. Other families, and I don't know your family, but other families have a totally different dynamic. And some of those, some of them are not going to bend or crack. They have more pride and honor in their faith than they have love for their own children. Yeah, dis dysfunctional is the best way to describe it. In fact, uh, we were raised never to question our parents. <laughs> His family's crazy. He used to, uh, his dad used to exercise demons when the children were misbehaving, right? You'd What's put his... this used to? I was dating a woman <laughs> three years ago, and he did it to her children. What, what's this used to crap? He still does. <laughs> yeah, but how do you know you didn't deserve it? <laughs> That's a good point. Uh, so, um, you sure. were... No, no child should, I should, I should explain, I don't think any child should be physically beaten, but bad joke. Unless... <laughs> Well, Unless it's me. Really, yeah. I should have been beaten. <laughs> Man, I was only caught for about a tenth of what I did. Yeah. I should have been beaten a lot. So you um, you were actually a minister. How long did you were did you act as a minister and, and pastor your church? Well, I started preaching in high school. I was 15. I prepared a sermon, and I went down to Mexico on the, the banks of a canal there where they had a little village. And I loved it, and I preached all through all through high school. I preached. I actually preached in churches and that before I was ordained I was out doing missionary work and uh, there's a lot of these uh, youth evangelism teams that go around and I went to Texas and you know preached and did missionary work in the parks and all that so uh, I went to Azusa Pacific College it's now a university and got a degree in religion and was ordained to the ministry and then in my early 20s I was an associate pastor at three different churches in California where I did, I did a lot of preaching, but it was also uh, youth ministry, music ministry, part of the pastoral staff. Um, and then after that, I was um, I spent about two years in Mexico as a missionary. And then I spent about eight years as a cross country evangelist, using my ordination of the ministry and my experience and my musical talent. And uh, I kept thinking Jesus was coming any minute. That it didn't matter. There would be no future. That we would. You know, maybe one more night, like a thief in the night, Jesus would come. And if I could preach one more sermon and save one more soul, we stood on park benches and we went into prisons. And I did a whole bunch of churches and revival meetings. And 
um, knocking on doors. How many and, people uh, would you say you were personally responsible for converting to Christianity? How many people did you save, do you think? Well, uh, on the one hand, I would say zero, because it's only the Holy Spirit that does it. <laughs> <laughs> There's that humility we were looking for. <laughs> sure. Which is which is what I would have preached. It's, if you preach the gospel, then the Holy Spirit draws people, right? Right. But uh, on the other hand, if you're just looking at the physical side of being involved in that process, however you want to interpret it, uh, I can't count hundreds and hundreds, maybe thousands. In fact, there are people today that are in the ministry uh, that are pastors because I encourage them to be called under the ministry. A guy named Mark Griffo was a young high schooler whose parents did not want him to become a preacher, but I encouraged him to. They thought he was wasting his life, and he's, he became an Assembly of God preacher. And did by you? The way, he was one of the ug ugliest responses I got when I became an atheist, too. I think it hit him pretty hard. But. Right. There's a... Um the chapter in your book about uh, how many, all the letters, that the fallout that came. Um, and that was one of the most interesting chapters. I think there's a huge variation, a continuum of responses from we respect you, but you know, we still think you're wrong, to uh, you know, I, I can't talk to you anymore. You're not my friend. Did you ever get any yeah, letters where people were saying, you know what, uh, I, I listened to you, and if you fell away, so would I? Um, I didn't hear that exact phrase. Was there one in the book? I forget if there was. I don't think so. Um, I think the best it got was, you know, I think you're very intelligent. If you have um, reasons, then uh, I'd like to listen to them. I know, you know, obviously I know you, you have reasons for it. Let's sit down and talk. Um, but yeah. it didn't go much farther than that one dinner, I think. Yeah, and then um, Carl Ferrer, you know, he's uh, he was the, the Christian um, publishing company. He and I are still really good friends. Oh, yeah, you were part of a, the music thing, that music group, and he wanted to continue, even though you're an atheist, he wanted to continue <laughs> working with you. <laughs> yeah, that was a different guy. Well, that, was that was a different, different guy. guy. That was um, that was a Gospel Light. You know, Gospel Light does these Christian Bible school songs and curriculums and stuff, and we did these VBS, Vacation Bible School things, for a few years. And when he got my letter, I was right in the middle of writing this musical for them. I had... It was a four-song, a small musical, and I had two finished, and I had two more to go. I was also producing the recording for them in the studio, and so I wrote a note to um, Wes Hastead, and I said, um, I, I'll, I'll understand perfectly, now that you've read my letter that I'm an atheist, if you want to replace me and find somebody else, that's just fine with me. And he called me, and he said, no, we got to finish. We're on a budget. We're on a deadline. we got to finish this thing. And I felt really weird. And I said, so you're knowingly hiring an atheist? And he said, well, we didn't start out thinking you were an atheist. So I felt an obligation, a contractual obligation to that company. I couldn't let him down. Right. So I used a pseudonym. I said, how about if I change my name? And so as an atheist, I wrote two more Christian songs just to get out of the deal. <laughs> so if you ever see a Gospel Light Vacation Bible School mini musical written by Edwin Daniels, then you'll know that it was, partially, it was partly written by an atheist, and the company knew I was an atheist, and it did well. Churches sang it and performed it and didn't know the difference. I bet they felt the spirit, too. Uh, do, they, yeah. do, do Christians ever get irked at the idea that you're still receiving royalties for Mary had a little lamb and his fleet is white as snow? <laughs> yeah, they do. They think it's funny. They think I should give it back, and... <laughs> well, why should I give money back to a Christian company to do more Christian work? It's a, and I try to explain that 
you know, artistically, the craft of music, I'm proud of, of what I did, and I deserve the royalties from it, although I'm embarrassed at the lyrics. But other <laughs> atheists have done that. You know, uh, Verdi was an atheist, and he wrote a requiem based on the Bible. So did Brahms. So did Berlioz. Uh, Ray Vaughan Williams, the British um, composer, was an atheist, and he wrote hymns for the English hymnal. And he said, if you got to go to church, you may as well listen to good music. So, um, so I, I do get the royalties, but I put them to good use. In fact, last year I got a check from Mana Music. It's not much anymore, like it was in the 70s, but I got a check for $1,019, which is always a surprise, because I forget about it. And I signed it over to the Women's Medical Fund, which is a charity here, an abortion charity that nice. Ann Gaylor runs, oh. who's my mother-in-law. And so... Uh, $1,000 to go to help poor women pay for abortions. And Katie, the bookkeeper, from when she got the check, she said, Hey, Dan, should I send a thank you note to the Christian music publisher? <laughs> <laughs> go ahead. Absolutely. <laughs> that is delicious. <laughs> I love well, it. You know, most Christians support abortion rights. We can't, we can't say they're all anti-abortion. You know, even the Christians who are anti-abortion have abortions. So uh, it's... Sure. But it's still, it's a soapbox issue for them, I think. It's unfortunately yeah. the most vocal ones are anti-abortion. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm curious about your rethought book for children. Do you ever get a lot of flack for writing uh, an atheistic-type book aimed specifically at children? Um, no. Um, you know, those, bo- those three kids' books that I have, they sell okay, but they're not massive sellers. You know, we sell hundreds every year, but not thousands. The only problem I've ever had with that book was um, a library in California refused to carry it, <laughs> and they didn't say why. One of our members in California gave it to them and said, here's a good book. You've got all these Christian books. Why don't you carry this? And they wouldn't carry it in the library, which seems odd that a library who in favor, who should be opposed to censorship. Right. And they just said, well, we just didn't think it was a good enough book. <laughs> didn't meet our standards apparently or whatever yeah whatever those standards were well comparing god to santa that's just offensive <clears throat> even to me and i don't believe in either so <laughs> well i i have friends there's a guy here bill leaders and he's a writer a newspaper writer and he looked at the book and said hey this is great but i don't think i could show it to my kids yet because we're atheists but i don't know about the santa thing i still believe in santa <laughs> 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 You're still lying to your kids about something. He says, "Well, you know, <laughs> it's a little white lie." Yeah. Well, I've always said that that's a great introduction to skepticism, right? Because you have all this evidence; they're presented with all this evidence, and they think that it's a supernatural explanation, and they find out later on that it's completely <laughs> natural. I mean, that should be this gateway into skepticism and atheism. It's amazing uh, that it doesn't work more often than not. Yeah, well, I'm I'm completely with Charlie on this one. In fact, I volunteer to eat the Santa cookies every time Christmas <laughs> Eve comes around. So, well, let's um let's get back to the fallout. Tell us about um that letter that you sent, your purpose of it, and actually, actually, let me back up one step to that last preaching thing that you did. You had a gig that you went down, I think, to Mexico, and then you had that, that little last preaching thing. You felt horrible because you were an atheist and. You were saying stuff you didn't believe anymore, but yeah, I felt obligated. And tell us about that. Yeah, that was. Um, yeah, that's in the book too. That story. It it was the summer of '83 when I knew I was an atheist. It was after about four or five years. I was about 35, 34, 
and um, but I still had a calendar and by that time I was easing out of the ministry anyway and I was working as a computer programmer but I was still preaching on the weekend so I was still active in the ministry and I was I had these dates that I was invited to preach and so I went up to Northern California one of these churches I think it was the Assembly of God in San Jose it was one of those Bay Area cities they, they could like flew me up and then another church over in Auburn, California was going to fly me back down again this was after that experience in Mexico where I was looking out at the stars you know, I, I tell that story in the book too a very non-religious moment but so I got up to this church in Auburn and they told me that there was going to be an atheist in the audience. Everybody was all happy because Harry was going to be there. I thought, oh, my goodness. And so I did this concert really feeling horrible. I almost stopped in the middle of it. I, I would sit at the piano bench, and I would do, like, uh, music slash sermonettes, you know, it was that kind of a thing. It wasn't right. like a full sermon. The Mormon version of this is, is Michael McLean. <laughs> Have you ever yeah, heard Michael McLean? It's that kind of a thing where you, yeah. uh, you know... I hope you were better <laughs> than he is because that's just painful. <laughs> Well, I was pained that night because I almost stopped and said, this is crap, you know, and these are horrible, horrible songs that I had written, you know, and, but the people were all smiling and saying praise God, and I couldn't, you know, what, what could I do, just walk out into the night, and besides, they hadn't given me my plane ticket home yet, you know, I was like, crap. So, so you were held hostage, is what it is. Well, it's, it's this horrible thing, yeah, I felt like, you know, the, you know the story of Pagliacci, that he, he has to go out and act like a clown and make people laugh, even though his heart was just broken, you know, right. I felt that way, I had this, I said, I can do this, this is showmanship, I should not be here, this is horrible, and there's this guy named Harry out in the audience, who was an atheist, and I felt so embarrassed. This whole whole church was treating this guy like he was. They said Harry's Harry's a wonderful guy. He's a respected businessman in town. He'll give you the shirt off his back. He's generous. He's fun, but he's not saved. And his new young wife became born again, and so she asked him to come to the meeting. She said it's, it's going to be music. It's going to be like Christmas music. So and he said, all right, I'll go with you because he loved his wife and wanted to go along. And so afterwards. I met Harry, but I couldn't even look him in the eyes. We went over to the pastor's house for like a little after meeting, and I'm sitting by the Christmas tree, and the pastor got up and said something like, uh, isn't it great that we can all celebrate the birth of Jesus, our Lord and Savior? And from across the room, I heard this voice saying, not all of us. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, wow, this guy Harry, he's, he's fearless. Every, he knows that everybody knows he's an atheist, and he seems to... And, I, and those few words to me were much more meaningful and real than all these sermons and hymns and, you know what I mean, all that phoniness that goes with religion. He was a real human being who was unafraid, and I thought, you know, I have to be like that. And so they flew me back home, and I never preached again. I broke everything off, and then I, a, few, a couple of weeks later, I sent out that letter, uh, one-page letter to everyone I could think of, and mailed it out. It was like early January of, um, of 84. That, and... And that was to everybody, like people in your congregation, fellow ministers, everybody. Yeah, and missionaries and Christian publishers and relatives. It was about, I don't know, maybe 50, 50 copies. I photocopied and put them in the mailbox. And, um, and that seems to me really good. A well, really... how many of those 50, wait, 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 how many of those 50 actually tried to save you once you became, or you announced that you were atheist? Oh, maybe a dozen or so. Most of them didn't say anything. Huh. Um, I would have expected a greater response. Well, there's different levels of people and interest. And I heard later on that people got the letter and didn't know what to do with it, you know, so it wasn't like... 
they felt an obligation. Right. You know, a bunch of them would be insecure themselves and maybe didn't want to go there, you know, didn't want to get involved in that. That seems to me a pretty brave thing to do because um, the result could be, in each of those cases, a complete uh, loss of that relationship, a severing of the relationship. I mean, you had to know you were taking that risk when you mailed the letters. Yeah, but but when you think about it, and, and I was probably thinking this way, although I didn't articulate it at the time, but um, a true friendship is unconditional. It's not contingent on these external, you know, do you belong to the same club, the same country, the same religion, the same whatever. And what happens if that external link disappears? Are you still friends, you know? Or uh, what if you leave the team? Are you still friends with your teammates? That kind of thing. So a true friendship is, doesn't care. And if I lost some friends from that, which I did, then were they really true friends in the first place? Did I really lose anything at all? A true friendship is a horizontal, equal, peer respect for each other as as human beings that's not contingent about on some external factor. In fact, I found out that some of my born-again Christian friends and I were still true friends because we have that genuine friendship that's above and beyond this, whether you're in the same group or not. So, so yeah, I lost some friends, but I guess I didn't lose much if, I, if that was the kind of friendship it was anyways. It was that fragile. And then, of course, I picked up a whole bunch of new friends, so, which is more fun Right. I, I want to <laughs> yeah, move. Friends. I want to move more into now activism because you joined the Freedom from Religion Foundation. You guys have done a world of good for the skeptical and, and atheist movements, and I want to talk about some of the court cases uh, you guys have uh, pushed forward. T- tell me about the most interesting one. You have a number of examples in your book, but f- tell me for you what what was the most interesting one. It's like asking an actor. We interviewed the actor Madison Arnold. What was your most important favorite role? And he says. It's always the one I'm working on right now. So the <laughs> yeah. one that we're working on right now is um, the National Day of Prayer. And last April, a federal judge ruled in our favor. Um, we, we challenged the President of the United States, who is mandated by Congress, to proclaim a day of prayer every year. It started in 1952. In 1988, it was fixed on the first Thursday in May. And so coming up May the 5th, the President's going to proclaim this day of prayer. Uh, we sued over that, and we won Judge Barbara Crabb in federal court on April the 15th, although she said that the injunction of the president, and it's not every day you can enjoin the president of the United States, but her injunction of the president was pending the final appeals. So the White House can still do this because it's in the appeals court now. But it's funny, on April the 15th last year, within about two hours of the news that we had won that case, the White House sent out a tweet to everybody, assuring the nation that uh, in spite of this ruling from the judge, we will have a day of prayer this year on May the 6th that was last year. And I doubt that Obama or anybody had even time to read that decision, to to know. They just wanted to make sure everybody would know that they're not against prayer. So we are now in, uh, in the appeals court. The Obama administration appealed their loss, and we filed a brief last summer, and we had oral arguments in December in Chicago at the Seventh Circuit, and now we're waiting for a decision from the three-judge panel out of the 15 on our National Day of Prayer victory. So that's really fun. There's a lot of history in it. There's a lot of bad history that had to be corrected. There's a lot of uh, legal precedent that had to be appealed to. Uh, We had seven other organizations file with us friend of the court briefs, including the ACLU and Americans United, American Humanists, 
the Jewish Joint Commission on Religious Liberty, the Southern Baptist, not Southern Baptist, the Baptist Joint Commission on Religious Liberty, and uh, other groups as well, CFI. And the government had friend of the court briefs from all these religious groups, including, you know, Judge Roy Moore, the Ten Commandments judge in Alabama, that guy. Right. Uh, in the uh, Alliance Defense Fund and the National Day of Prayer Task Force. So that's a big one. It it could could get appealed to the Supreme Court. We also are suing over the parsonage allowance. Every member of the clergy in the country is allowed to eliminate their rent or their house payment from income. It lowers their tax liability. So we think that's unfair, and we, we're in court right now challenging that. We think all Americans should be treated the same way when it comes to their tax liability and their housing allowance. Yeah, did you ever go on Ferengula and see that comparison they did between a preacher and a regular man, both of them making the same amount? Yeah. Well, I didn't see his, but I, he probably got a lot of that from us because we did all this research on it. Uh, How about, you know, one of the things that, uh, among many, that disappointed me about George Bush was his <laughs> faith-based initiatives. And you guys have a number of lawsuits on those, um, including, I think, faith works and mentor works that you guys were victorious. Why can't we get rid of this whole initiative where you, you give money to these faith-based programs? I mean, it seems to me a clear violation of the separation of church and state. I tell that whole story in the book Godless, uh, how it started and how we, how we sued and all that. And we were winning and winning and winning, but it's like running around the country putting out these little fires, you know. Right. So we tried to challenge George Bush himself, but the um, the court said we did not have standing to sue. We appealed that, and the the appeals court in Chicago agreed with us and overturned it and said we do have standing. How do you sue the president? The, the thing is, we were filing under taxpayer standing because this was taxpayer money that Congress had given to the president, but the fact that it was a general appropriation and that Congress had not specifically designated the money for the faith-based initiative, the fact that George Bush was just simply voluntarily, at his discretion, taking some of his pile of money and using it for that, it broke the nexus between the taxpayer and the appropriation, and the Supreme Court overruled the appeals decision, saying that we do not have the standing to get into court to even challenge it. In fact, one of the justices said what Bush was doing might in fact be wrong, but we just can't get at it that way. So we lost that case not on the merits. We didn't lose the actual case. We lost the ability to even take the case. And since that time, uh, it's called the Hine decision, because Hine was the, the faith-based czar at the time, J. Hine. Uh, Hine versus Freedom from Religion Foundation in 2007. Since then, it's been harder to get into court, because now all these governments are looking at, oh, well, we can keep, keep, keep them out on standing. They used to do that before, but now it's even tougher. The bar has been raised. And when we go into court now, we have to be real sure that we have more standing than simply taxpayer standing. Or if there is a clear nexus between the, the legislature and the appropriation, then we can still claim taxpayer standing. So it's a, it's a tough issue. But uh, uh, fortunately, Obama, he modified it a little bit. He hasn't changed it much, but he sort of backed off, uh, even on the National Day of Prayer. He's not inviting the religious right in like Bush used to do and they're mad at him for that, but he still wants to proclaim the Day of Prayer, and he still wants to maintain this sort of governmental, whatever you call it, accommodation for religion. Right. Hmm. Um, it's probably a little early in the game um, to fault him too much for that, but it is disappointing. He had Rick Warren in his inauguration. Um, hmm. You still got to pay lip service in order to get elected. 
but uh my god you know if if people who pay the money into the into the taxes that go into a pool that's then appropriated to fund these faith-based initiatives don't have standing who does yeah. how can well, you get at be, that it would have to be somebody with a direct injury some organization that applied for the money and was turned down on religious grounds it, it's like you, you can't complain about religion in the public schools just because you're mad at it you need a plaintiff you need a student in the school or, or parents with students in the school who have direct exposure and, and injury to what to this action is happening in that case you have plaintiffs that are live bodies who are directly affected so there still could be a way to challenge these faith-based if, if there's somebody in the program itself that was discriminated against any one of these faith-based programs like so how do you guys the find these people i mean do you uh, just promote it on your site or do people approach you yeah it's hard uh often they contact us but uh sometimes it's through a newspaper story we'll write a letter of complaint the story will get in the paper or on tv and then we'll hear from people and often we don't hear from anybody i mean it seems to me even if you were lucky enough to find someone who's discriminated against the decision would be fairly narrow uh, toward that incident, but it wouldn't strike down the initiative itself. Yeah, yeah, that's the, what happened with FaithWorks. We shut that thing down. They couldn't operate without tax money, and that, that tells you something. It tells you how cheap their God is. If, if their God is that powerful, why doesn't he raise the money for them? Why do they have to go begging from the tax dollars? Same thing with mentoring <laughs> kids. Uh, that was a Chuck Colson-related thing, you know. Uh, they were mentoring the children of inmates, but all they were doing was preaching Jesus. So. Um, hmm. Uh, I love it. You begin the chapter with this uh, quotation by, is it Benjamin Franklin? Yeah. Uh, that is yeah. completely appropriate. It's, uh, when a religion is good, I conceive it will support itself. And when it does not support itself, and God does not take care to support it so that its professors are obliged to call for help of the civil power, tis a sign I apprehend of its being a bad one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, think about it. If, if you were running a religious charity, wouldn't you be embarrassed? to admit that your God wasn't providing your needs, that you had to go begging? I mean, I mean, I would, I, would, I would be ashamed. I would take pride in doing it on my own. And that's what America is. These private groups should do what they want to do, and they should raise their money, and they should go out and, and do their mission and their ministry. This is a free country. But they shouldn't do it with my tax dollars. Absolutely. And if, if their God isn't powerful enough to support them, then maybe you should start looking for another god. I mean, if you if you can't, isn't that a sign of his displeasure with you that that he's not supporting your ministry? I mean, or he doesn't care about your cause? Either it that, or at like, the very least, display, hey, we're getting help from the government here. God isn't really behind us. I'd like to see that displayed right. on the sign. Of course, you can right. always uh, find an answer to anything. When I was a preacher, I would have said the government was God's vehicle for helping us. <laughs> you know, never yeah, it's that sort of, of thinking that makes me hit people. So, <laughs> never mind. These, that some of those tax dollars came from non-believers, or people who disagree right. with your mission. These are the same people who always want lower taxes, fewer government programs, smaller government. But when it's a faith-based initiative, oh, be as big as you want, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Drives me nuts. Um, anyway, you guys are in the trenches. You guys are actually, I mean, Leighton and I do this little podcast, you know, maybe helping uh, people who might have certain problems. You guys are actually making a difference. Tell me a little bit about your uh, Freedom From Religion Foundation, what we can do to help you guys. We started in 1978 as a national group 
and I came on, I joined in, in uh, 84 and then came on in 87 and in 2004 became co-president. It started with just three people and now there's more than 16,000 free thinkers. We're not a specifically atheistic organization. We like the word free thinker and about, I think about 85% of our group call themselves atheists, but the rest call themselves agnostics or whatever. We don't care what you call yourself. Uh, in fact, there's even some religious people that join. What, what we say is it doesn't matter what we call ourselves. We all disbelieve in the same God. <laughs> but atheists and agnostics, uh, <laughs> we work to keep state and church separate. That's, the, that's our first purpose, and that has to do with our legal action, which is in court, in litigation, but it's also, most of it is just letters. Most of it is educational. Uh, and the second purpose we have is to educate the public about the views of non-theists non-believers and so we publish books we have a newspaper we have a weekly national radio show we um, do debates and public speaking and so on and um, media interviews and that so it's both purposes and uh, our philosophy is build it and they will come and so we've been building it and members have been joining and we're growing fast we're the largest organization of free thinkers right now and by the way the word free thinker is a single word Sometimes Christians say, well, I'm a free thinker in Christ. And I have to point out, well, you mean free space thinker. No, that's, that's when you should point out, no, Christ is thinking for you. You're not a free thinker. <laughs> well, even the Bible says, Paul says, bring every thought into captivity unto the obedience of Christ. So I don't know how captivity right. squares with freedom, but in any event, lean not on your own understanding, it says in, in Proverbs. It's, but, a, uh, it's a master-slave relationship. Yeah. In fact, I talk about that in my newest book, The, the Good Atheist, about this whole slave mentality that right. Rick Warren is promoting through his, you know, so-called purpose-driven life. But, um, you know, where was I with the foundation? The word uh, freethinker? Oh, free yeah. Yeah, as a single word, and free thought as a single word, historically and in the dictionary, that has been reserved for the non-believers or sometimes the religious skeptics, like the pre-Darwinian deists like Jefferson was. So I would caution a Christian to be careful when they say they're a free thinker because that word means something different than what they think it means. As long as they're careful to take a breath and say, I'm a free thinker, they can do it that way. <laughs> now, as, as president of the organization, as a male, I'm assuming it's a patriarchal organization. Do you accept women as well? Well, I'm co-president, and Annie Lloyd Gaylor <laughs> and I are co-presidents of the foundation. But can she and talk during the meetings, yeah. or do you do tell you her to remain silent? give her a backhand just to keep her in line <laughs> she, she's written a couple of books about exactly that she has this wonderful <laughs> book called, called uh, Women Without Superstition talking about people like Elizabeth Cady Stanton who were told to do just that when she was working for suffrage and for women's rights Right. the bible was quoted she said the bible was hurled at us everywhere we go and she couldn't uh, she could hardly say anything without the preachers and the priests you know, ganging up on her. How dare she think that women have a right to participate in their democracy? You know, this is the church saying that. So, uh, Annie Laurie is. A, is uh, she also wrote another book called "Woe to the Women." The Bible tells me so, which outlines, like you're pointing out, the discrimination in the Bible against females. And so, most of our staff is female. Our lead attorney, Rebecca Markert, is, is female. And now we we just hired Patrick Elliott, our second staff attorney. So we try real hard for balance in so many different ways we need to try harder with um, with race um, right now we did a survey and right now it's 95% of our group identifies as Caucasian which we were surprised 
Sorry, we, we've, we've been trying to get minorities more and more, but we're working as hard as we can to try to even that even that out, too. Well, you're a musician. Why not write a rap? I'd oh, like to hear you rap. I did write a rap. It's horrible. Uh, <laughs> well, that explains uh, it. You just have to get more hip-hop with your bad self. Well, well, the thing is, I can't really do rap, you know, but I wrote this <laughs> quasi-hip-hop rap, which was very uh, neurotic. It's like, it was Satan. It's called Lucifer's Lament, and Satan, Satan's singing this crazy rap that doesn't work, but he's complaining because he's supposed to be the bad guy, but God's taking all the credit from him, you know? All the stuff that God's doing, it's not fair. Uh, these acts of God are... are the, he says, uh, he's complaining about the man upstairs is doing all his work for him. How can you compete with the man upstairs? So you can hear that on the... Um, Friendly Neighborhood Atheist CD that we come out with. It's called Lucifer's Lament. Does, does it sound like Randy, Will Smith and DJHS Jeff? That's fantastic. I think um, <laughs> there's a there's a book out there called Drunk uh, with Blood. I think uh, God's Killings, where he documents all the God's killing, and God's responsible for something like uh, over a million killings, and Satan's only got eleven <laughs> in the whole Bible. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I wish I could remember those lyrics. Uh, you know, Satan tries really hard. He he does these mudslides and things. But uh, do you at least God know the chorus? I'd love God. to hear you sing the chorus. <laughs> and then God does this uh, worldwide flood. How do I compete with that? You know. <laughs> and then, uh, and then he, he tries to uh, this disease. You know, a plague. But then God creates hell. Now, how do I compete with that? It's not fair. <laughs> but, um, All right, I gotta order that CD. That sounds great. Um, well, just remember that I'm. <clears throat> I'm deliberately. I mean, I can't do rap, but at least it's it works because it doesn't work. Right. That's the intent. Um, what as as members of the skeptical atheist agnostic community, what what can we do to help you? We can join the the foundation. Yeah. Well, there's one thing you can do that's very concrete. I need more jokes. <laughs> I have. <laughs> we have this radio show, and we've done more than 250 shows now, almost into our fifth fifth year now. And I try to tell one joke on every show, and I've got like 50 really good religion-free thought jokes, but I've already used them. And so I'm asking people to help me if you know any good religion-related jokes. you know. And I try to make up a few, but they don't work that well. So email me with any of those things, because I, I, I've tried to give one on each show. Well, but, you're, um, you're doing it wrong. Instead of emailing it, just go buy yourself a little child laborer, and they'll get <laughs> all your jokes out for you. Really? Okay, I can do that. Well, I have joke books, too, but there's not that many with religion. Right, the religion and some content. some of them aren't very good, and some of them we can't say on the radio. So, <laughs> <laughs> But um, this week's show was uh, this homeless man had a heart attack, and he went to a Catholic hospital, and they revived him, and they said, how are you going to pay? Do you have health insurance? And he said, no. Well, do you have any money? And he said, no, I don't even have a bank account. Well, do you have any relatives? And he said, no, I just had this old sister who's a spinster nun, and the nun at the Catholic hospital said, I beg your pardon, nuns are not spinsters, nuns are married to Jesus. And the guy said, oh, well then send the bill to my brother-in-law. <laughs> <laughs> so, if you know any more jokes like that, uh, good jokes, then I could use them. But, uh, but I think speak out. Uh, if in, in, for our group, if you or any of your listeners notice a violation of state church separation at any level. It could be the high school choir director who does a whole winter concert of Christmas carols, let's say, held in his church. Say. 
It could be a principal having prayers over the loudspeaker at the football game, which we complained about in Tennessee, by the way, a couple of months ago, and they stopped it. Uh, it can be public money going to private religious groups. It can be prayer at city council meeting. And by the way, we just had a radio show about Mitch Kale in Hawaii who complained about prayers before the Senate in Hawaii. He was arrested, but then he was exonerated, and they stopped the prayers because of the civil disobedience. Now they, they have no prayer before the Senate. So hmm. anything you see that could be a violation, uh, nativity scene at the county building, let's say, on, on or at the post office, uh, let us know. You can contact our legal staff, and they are really good. Uh, they have a whole bunch of templates ready for most of these issues that come up again and again. And so we will ask you a few questions, and we can send out at least a letter of complaint about what's going on in your area. And we don't threaten a lawsuit unless it, unless it gets really, really, really bad. But often we can correct a violation just with a letter pointing out the law, and many governments are happy to obey the law. A letter from an attorney goes a long way because there's always at least the implicit threat of a lawsuit if the behavior isn't stopped. So if you just have an attorney uh, letterhead <laughs> when you write that, uh, it's yeah. often fairly effective, right? Yeah, because a lot of these school districts, especially they're really poor, they don't want to waste resources and time fighting a losing lawsuit. So uh, sometimes they do, actually. Sometimes they do dig in and say, oh, yeah, we, they would rather obey God. And, because personally, what... what then it for them. What's the penalty them to them personally? Politically, it's a smart move for them to defend Jesus in the Bible. All right. So jokes. Um, join your foundation. Buy your books. Um, you have uh, the Good Atheist. Um, Godless probably is an updated version of Losing Faith in Faith, but Losing Faith in Faith is good as well. Annie Gaylor's books. Could you repeat those again? Annie Laurie Gaylor, as we were talking about earlier, she wrote uh, a book called Woe to the Women. The Bible tells me so. Uh, which analyzes society's treatment of women based on biblical commandments and ideas, society's bad treatment of women. And then, uh, since then, she wrote a book called Women Without Superstition, which is an anthology of about 50 well-known and some not-so-well-known women in history who made a huge difference as non-believers working for various things, like women's rights and uh, birth control and literature and art and all of that. So... It's a, it's a huge book uh, with all those 50 women in it, but it's a, it's a great read. That, sound, that sounds really good. You can order that from the website, yourfreedomfromreligion.org website? Yep. You can order it there, or Amazon.com has it. Great. Well, uh, we're actually running down on time, and there well, was on. one. Hang on a second. What you got? Right, I do go want to. you got one thing to talk about. It, Dan, if you've got time, I would like to talk to you about debating Christians. Well, actually, um, that was where I was going to ask him. Uh, and then biblical discrepancies. Yeah. Which do you um, want to hit first, biblical discrepancies or debating Christians? Well, it's the same thing a lot of times. <laughs> <laughs> All right, go ahead. Ask, ask your question, Leighton. Well, one of the questions that I wanted to ask before uh, the show got over is uh, you debate theists on a regular basis, and uh, Charlie and I do it kind of as a halftime show, and uh, there are arguments that theists bring up that make us want to put our heads through the wall, and I wanted to know, what, what is the argument that just makes you want to rip your eyes out? Well, I've heard them all, and I used to preach to them all, so <laughs> I, I don't get that angry about it. I, I actually treat it as kind of philosophical that I know where they're coming from. Uh, I, I think probably the literal stuff really does. The literal Satan, the literal, you know, demons and all that. In, in the 21st century now, people who still believe in talking snakes and burning bushes and that, which 
it's just embarrassing. It's not anger. It's just embarrassing that we, there's so many people in our species who still are deluded about those things. But the biggie, I think, is morality, that without a God, you can't be moral. Without God, you can't have meaning or purpose. And, and that's easy to put the lie to by just looking empirically. Look at the lives of non-believers. And that's, um, that's the second half of my newest book, The Good Atheist, which has more than 300 profiles of atheists and agnostics who lived lives of immense purpose in many, many different fields, from acting to art to politics to philosophy to, to screenwriters. And, you know, um, and so just, just to empirically clear the record and say, look, you're saying one thing, but it turns out that that's just not true. Meaning and purpose and joy and happiness in life is shared by all human beings, whether you're a believer or not. Yeah, it's it's interesting. They're they're starting to move away from that tack because, objectively and empirically, you know, you can you can put that away fairly quickly. Seventy five percent of the the country is Christian. Seventy five percent of the jail population is Christian, right? <laughs> more Ten, than that, probably more than that. Yeah, ten to fifteen percent is um, atheist or agnostic, and less far less than one percent of the jail population is atheist or agnostic. So if anything. Uh, on that criteria, it's a benefit to be a non-believer. You're more moral. <laughs> yeah, and, and you know that's actually true. Uh, we have to be careful with those statistics because right. it might represent more of a socioeconomic. Exactly, the atheist agnostic. Is, as your education goes up and your income goes up, you have a lot more to lose. For example, so you wouldn't want to be um, stealing a necklace or something like unless you're Lindsay Lohan, and it doesn't matter. Well, and then also people that live in dire economic tend to believe more because they want to win that cosmic lottery so there's sure people. but in any event whatever <coughs> the reasons are it, it does put the light of the claim that being a non-believer makes you a worse person because then there should be this, the prison should be full of, of atheists and like that. right yeah and, and so they move to the tack that oh well you guys are just borrowing from Christianity your ethics <laughs> <laughs> and then you go straight to the Bible and you show them that, uh, well, here are the ethics in the Bible. What are your favorite examples? I know you love the one where um, that we should delight. I think it's, is it in Psalms or Hosea where you should delight in smashing little babies against the rocks? Yeah, Psalm 137.9. Yeah, and it's, you know, it doesn't just say that regrettably during wartime there might have to be some ethically gray areas, you know, that we have, you know, it, it doesn't just say that. It says, happy shall he be who takes and dashes the little children, little ones, against the stones. So it's not this, that you have to do it. You have to be happy to do it. Uh, some verses translated as blessed. So, uh, so yeah, that's one of them. And then, of course, stoning somebody to death for picking up sticks on the Sabbath and right. uh, for, for doing something that is not wrong. It's not immoral. It's not wrong. He was probably... I'm guessing wanting to build a fire to cook food for his family or or heat heat the family. So and yet he had to be put to death for doing that because God's Sabbath had to be honored and His holiness was more important than him feeding a family. I mean that's horrible ethics and what, what astounds the other way around. Well, I what think a, Christians are borrowing from humanism. When, when you judge a religion <coughs> to be good, you are judging it by some non-religious standard. When you judge that this religion is better than that or worse than that or this Christian is better than that. You're using a human standard of right and wrong, not a, a not a biblical or religious standard. And so I think most Christians are good people, but not because of their religion. It's in spite of their religion. We can judge them to be good people because of the way
way they are altruistic and, and they have empathy and kindness and reason and compassion to other human beings, which are human values. Those are not religious values. They happen in all cultures and all in all religions and all all over the planet. So we are happy to share the morality with the Christians. Uh, and, you know, <laughs> and let's say uh, people should be judged by their actions. Who cares what they say? And if they need their faith to be a good person, we'd rather have them be a good person than not. So let the you know if that's the only way they can be good is to pretend that it comes from their religion. Well, uh, you know we're no threat to them. We're not barging into their churches or anything. Let them believe it. I mean that's kind of at the core of it, isn't it? The um Christians believe, and and it's part of their part and parcel of their religion that that humans are uh, innately evil. At our core, we we're under the curse of original sin or whatever, and and we are uh, innately evil. And so always they think, wow, if you didn't have God telling you what to do, you'd run around raping and killing and and molesting people, stealing and and harming people. Wait, wait, wait! People. Who said that was wrong? So it, it it amazes me, and you know you kind of have to turn it around. So if you lost your religion today, really, would you go out there and start murdering and raping? Is that the only thing that's keeping you from doing it? Yeah, it's a real insult, isn't it? It's a real put down. It's a pessimistic view of human nature, and most of those people know that they would not. In fact, we now know that human nature, along with other primates and other mammals, uh, is basically original good. It's not original sin. We do have violent tendencies when things get bad. But we we submerge them. We don't we don't rely on them. Most of our lives are lived as just basic good altruistic human beings. We all know that. If you're mentally healthy, if you're not a sociopath or a psychopath, and sometimes the Christians say, "Oh yeah, well just look at the headlines. Look <laughs> at the headlines and tell me about right. it." Well, well look at the headlines. The headlines are printed because they are unusual, not usual. You, you don't put our normal daily life in the headlines. We all live our lives outside of the headlines. The first thing you see first thing you say when you see a horrible headline is what an inhuman thing to do we assume that the natural human tendency is not to do those things so that's why they're headlines because they're so non-human they're so non-representative of our species so look at the headlines and and then ad- admit then that that is an aberration from our normal human tendencies to be good to each other you what know is- one thing that always entertains me is the idea that the theists have that because everything is so corrupt, the world must be on its last leg and it is about to end. And you do just a, an iota of research and you find out that there have been claims since 2800 BCE about the world ending because it is so corrupt. It's just something that always entertains me. Yeah, and the, the new young generation is just totally lacking any morals or guidance. Right. And I think Socrates <laughs> used to say that. You know? Yeah. Uh, They've all been saying the world's ending. Even in the New Testament, Jesus told his disciples, you know, the world's going to end before some of you die. And Paul thought that. They were living in the end times. Look at the Millerites and the Jehovah's Witnesses. and the, mm-hmm. uh, You know, every, I think every generation of Christians has fancied or has had a, a group of fancies that we are in the actual end times right now. And maybe one of these days somebody's going to be right, but... Are you kidding me? My father terrified me with these stories as a kid. I remember walking outside, uh, going out to milk the cows. I look up, and the sun is that orangish red color, and I nearly shit my pants thinking, oh, God, it's Christ. He's back. <laughs> what uh, What has astounded me? I've listened to your debates, a lot of them, and, and I, I've twice my jaw dropped. Um, once you were talking to a guy about morality and you turned to him and asked him if God told you, instructed you and commanded you to kill me 
would you do it? And he said, you know, first, I, you know, God would never do that. And then he pointed out that, well, he has in many instances in the Old Testament. <laughs> and finally, you, squ- you cornered him, and he had to admit that, yes, if, if he knew it was God and God instructed him to kill you, that he'd do it. And, uh, well, he said, I would have to consider it, is what he said. Oh, is that- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, God's going to consider throwing you into hell, too. So. <laughs> and the the second one was when you um that you brought up that thing happy you shall be to, to dash the small children and the guy said well that is moral yeah that's that a good thing to do couldn't yeah, believe Wilson, it. you, you got to give him points for consistency <laughs> uh, i i thought he was going to try to interpret that verse to make right. it not so bad but he said look we human beings can't know what is moral because we have a, a small perspective and god has the big picture so if God says to be happy to dash babies, then that's the moral thing to do. That's the real thing to do. And I was shocked, and there were gasps from the audience. And so then I turned to the New Testament, and I said, well, then Jesus said that you should beat some slaves harder than other, other slaves. Is it a good thing to own slaves and beat slaves? And he said, yes, it is. Oh, <laughs> Jesus. And he's a pretty big known, big, big name um, Calvinist, uh, Doug Wilson. He's out of Idaho. And he's, he's got some books out. Um, so these guys are tough to talk with because at least they know what they believe, they stick with it, and they say it no matter how stupid it makes them look. They, they're proud of what they believe. Well, I think we should give them more airtime. Let's let these people speak so everybody, especially with this, uh, this generation coming up with the Internet, with, with information at their fingertips, let them compare these idiots to, uh, to the rest of us, to the ones who are actually out there trying to make a difference. Yeah, but it's a little bit unfair because we're picking easy targets like that, these guys. Uh, most of them are not that extreme. Most of them are actually pretty good, and they, they tinker with their theology. They tinker with their theodicies as well, and they want to do what's right. They're just, they're just deluded, but they're not all as crazy as a Doug Wilton is. Yeah, uh, most of them are moderate, and they will interpret uh, these yeah. verses. Or some of them will say, well, you know, uh, that was... Uh, that was how it was back then, right? And they, this is in a time of war, and and this is how it was back then, and and you know this this was just people saying it. God wasn't saying this, right? And so they get this sort of parable. They pick and choose uh, the stuff that they like. Usually they say, "Oh, you're taking it out of context." Yeah, right. You hear yeah. that all the time. I usually hear from my context. family that I just don't understand. <laughs> But then what's so great about you is that you know the context. You preached it for 20 years, and you take them through, and you show them how wrong they are. Yeah, and even then, they, they don't admit it. But Ernest uh, Jesus was like that. He quoted um, the Bible about there's neither slave nor free, Greek nor Jew, male nor female, you know, saying, see, the Bible anticipated equality. But if you look <laughs> at the verses before and after that, that's not at all what that verse is saying. Right. It only applied to baptize Christians, first of all. And then after that verse, if you look at the context, which they're always asking us to do, look at the context. After that verse, it goes on to say, by the way, Arabs are excluded from this. Arabs are not equal. Uh, you know, the, the son of the bondwoman, which today would be all, all Muslims, basically, who, who trace their ancestry or their religion back through um, to Ishmael to Abraham. Yeah. So uh, looking at the context weakens their argument. Which, if you're not really utterly familiar with the Bible, um, they can get away with this stuff. That, that's why I think you're, you're probably the most effective debater that we have in our ranks. Um, Dawkins uh, tends to shy away from debates. Hitchens is very, very good. 
but he doesn't have the um, ground level knowledge of the Bible that you do. Well, Hitchens is good depending on his blood alcohol level. So. <laughs> the more drunk he gets, the more powerful. Yeah. Well, we all have our different points and strengths. So. Well, I really appreciate what you do. Keep writing books. Keep debating these Christians. Keep doing what you do with the um, Freedom from Religion Foundation. Uh, and, uh, you know, whatever we can do to support you, we're there for you. Yeah, we'll consider getting off our lazy asses to help. We promise. I'm expecting one good joke from each of you. All right. <laughs> you got it. Uh, one good joke that you can play on the radio. You should really <laughs> yeah. specify. Excellent. All right. Fantastic. Thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, it was a pleasure having you. And uh, we'll give you the last word. Anything you'd like to say in passing? Yeah, nothing fails like prayer. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Still waiting Wonderful. for God to make me a werewolf. <sighs> <laughs> Excellent. Okay, well, Dan, so this is a lot of fun. We'll uh, let you enjoy the rest of your Sabbath. Um, it was a pleasure violating it with you today. Yeah, please go eat Christ again. Uh, we <laughs> okay. we do recommend Christ. He's good this time of year. All right, Dan. Thanks again. All right. Thanks. Bye. All right. Bye. Bye. bye.